Rogers, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the April 15th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. Our plan is to provide weekly 15-minute webcasts and podcast updates featuring the latest news and answering your questions about COVID-19. Please know that just as knowledge of COVID-19 is evolving, this program will evolve over time as new information warrants. We welcome your suggestions to make this as beneficial as possible. Support for this program is provided by DKB Med. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website at covid19.dkbmed.com for complete CME and CE information. To access other free CME and CE programs and to view or listen to last week's content, please visit us at dkbmed.com. Here are the overall learning objectives for the program. With us today, we have Dr. Allwater, Clinical Director of the Division of Infectious Disease at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. Dr. Allwater, thank you for joining us. Take it away. Thank you, Faith. And I want to thank DKB Med for their generous support and also the Postgraduate Institute of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. And as already mentioned, uh, you have the URL address for additional resources and educational activities. As uh, the pandemic evolves, uh, New York City and the metropolitan area remains the epicenter of cases and unfortunately deaths, uh, at least in North America. Uh, but this continues to evolve and there are hints that the social distancing that has been uh, evoked in many states has started to help bend the curve, but in other areas, it's still increasing. So. Uh, this is something that will be watched uh, quite closely. And also to mention that uh, the experiences in Wuhan, China, and also some of the European countries such as Denmark and Austria that are beginning to liberalize their social distancing will be watched very carefully. In terms of healthcare workers, there remains a divide uh, a bit between what is commonly done in Europe uh, as well as in North America. North America has always, at least with the Centers for Disease Control backing, always preferred uh, an N95 respirator or other similar devices on the chance that there's routine aerosolization of the virus. Now, uh, the CDC did loosen uh, their requirements because of the intense demands on N95 masks and similar. Uh, they are now allowing a face mask, which is the alternative seen on the right-hand side of the slide from NHS in uh, Britain. Uh, but this mimics very much the WHO recommendation where uh, droplet precautions are sufficient for protection uh, unless there are aerosol generating procedures. So uh, this is something that's being followed and I do see that there's probably going to be a gradual uh, change over time because although aerosolization is certainly possible, it is probably not the brunt of the way the infections are acquired. The second uh, recent big change uh, last week was the CDC uh, changing what they called uh, close contact with a suspected or confirmed COVID-19. Traditionally, this has been a 14-day quarantine 
Now, what's happened with the interim guidance is anyone that's considered a key essential worker, and you can see the list in the blue box there, uh, do not have to uh, obey that. And that's really to help avoid uh, shortages in uh, critical infrastructure workers. So I think uh, the uh, strict demands back when we thought the uh, infection could be more contained with uh, perhaps contract tracing and strict quarantine is being loosened. So uh, this is being uh, followed along with the fact that uh, a fair number of people are probably asymptomatic, hence the uh, universal mask suggestions that was done earlier. Now the Centers for Disease Control have also uh, put forward uh, information from 14 states on hospitalizations. It, since so much of our early data was from China, I thought it was uh, useful to try to compare. What is very evident here, though, is that there's very little difference in the impact of this coronavirus in terms of age. Much like in China, there are very few uh, hospitalizations for uh, children and even young adults, but it climbed significantly, especially in the oldest of ages. And looking at this group of almost 1,500 patients, uh, almost three quarters were over 50 years of age. There was still a slight male predominance, not very different than in China, as well as underlying health conditions. It remains unclear if hypertension is an independent one. Uh, so there's some suggestions that it might be, but it could also just reflect an age variable. But it is clear that's a little different than other studies are that obesity has become uh, a significant risk factor along with some of the others previously cited, such as diabetes and heart disease. The other uh, point from this report is that uh, it appears that Blacks suffered higher hospitalizations than expected for their uh, percentile of the communities from which they uh, had taken this data. The reasons for this are by no means clear. A variety of factors have been suggested, uh, whether it's genetic, uh, whether it's due to comorbidities, is it due to uh, body mass index, or, or perhaps uh, socioeconomic factors. So this is something that will certainly be determined, and I would say in Baltimore as well, we've certainly seen that this uh, holds true in our community. Now, for the sickest of patients in the intensive care unit, I thought it was worth contrasting the early experience at the University of Washington, whereas uh, Italy, of course, um, had an earlier upswing in its epidemic and uh, an older population uh, and really had a, a much more vast ICU critical care experience. What you can see, interestingly, is the age is very similar of the uh, people. Uh, there's a little bit of a typo, that's 56 to 70 was the general range. Uh, there were uh, more women in the uh, Seattle co cohort as a percentage, um, and uh, with proning being used in about a third of patients in both locations, but with a higher mortality rate uh, noted, at least in this small number than in Italy. I would say Johns Hopkins, although we have similar numbers to date, 
of just 24 are critical care people are reporting that they are proning patients at a much higher rate, uh, north of 50%, and our mortality rate is under 5%. Now, this, of course, is very early, and we also have a younger population than either in Italy or University of Washington, but it may speak to the fact that certain amounts of supportive care, rather than any kind of uh, pharmaceutical intervention, uh, really uh, may make some differences. So that certainly will come about. Speaking of therapeutics, the Infectious Diseases Society of America issued what they call a living a guideline document. Um, uh, and they use the very strict grade format in an effort to give recommendations. And you can see what there's listed here. And I, I think that the, the, the snapshot version is that because of the lack of evidence, almost any off-label drug at the moment has only been advocated for use in the setting of a, a clinical trial uh, because there's a lack of evidence. And some have argued that this is the only ethical approach uh, given uh, known risks and only theoretical benefit. Others have said that, well, gosh, uh, you know, we're faced with people in front of us. We have no knowledge. We're trying to make educated guesses, and there are no trials available. So there's clearly a tension here, but uh, this is a, a, a very, how should I say, dogmatic approach uh, to giving recommendations, uh, which I think certainly uh, is one point of view. Uh, the only one of note is a corticosteroid recommendation. Um, uh, that uh, they recommend against the use of corticosteroids uh, as a conditional recommendation with very low uh, certainty of evidence. Uh, the uh, Critical Care Society did come out with guidelines saying that steroids in the ICU should only be used in accordance to standard procedures there, for example, such as suspected uh, adrenal insufficiency and other management issues, not specifically for COVID-19. Remdesivir, uh, we await uh, randomized controlled trials. Um, in the news, it is of interest that the uh, one trial on less severe disease was closed in China due to enrollment problems, so we won't know much about that. The severe disease will await uh, that trial. And also, two trials in the United States have had expanded numbers of enrollment uh, tripling or quadrupling the number required in the trial, which are all hints perhaps that the drug is not super effective, at least at the time that it's administered. This uh, case series data, which were presented recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, had no comparator arm, so it's very hard to understand how effective this drug is. And I would just mention it's gotten the news as something that uh, says that, you know, this drug is helpful, but I think that remains a question mark. Uh, this was 61 patients um, who about three quarters had completed 10-day course. Uh, they were quite ill, as you might expect for compassionate use. People are, you know, fighting fires and they are uh, trying something for their desperately ill patients. Uh, majority as expected had comorbidities. And at least at the time that they put together this case series, uh, they say that about 70% had improved, at least in terms of oxygenation. Um, now, 23% were judged to have severe side effects, but 
Much of this just seems to have been uh, potentially not drug effects, but just the uh, seriousness of their critical care illness. But again, I don't think from this compilation that much of anything could likely be taken from these data. Uh, I had shown this slide earlier, and um, what I just wanted to emphasize is I've added the bottom row, which is, the, uh, again, another preprint. None of this has been um, published yet, but this was on chloroquine uh, from a, Brazil, a group in Brazil that looked at so-called high-dose chloroquine at 600 twice a day uh, versus a lower dose of 450 twice a day. Uh, both are actually quite uh, high doses of chloroquine. Uh, this trial uh, is significant for the fact that, not unsurprisingly, uh, there was little impact on viral shedding. However, there was a concern for higher um, lethality at the seven, um, with the higher dose of so that arm was stopped. And uh, it's just something, again, that I think as we're accumulating more data, uh, that is uh, probably pointing to the fact that at least in Ill very ill patients, there can be untoward reactions from these medicines. And uh, my own personal opinion without data is that a lot of drugs look good in the test tube because if they inhibit uh, uh, host cell protein synthesis and so on, uh, they'll appear to inhibit virus. But once you test those drugs in vivo, uh, you may not see that effect. Uh, and I think that will likely be the case with hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Also, um, a, a group uh, from France uh, that does pharmacovigilance looked at a recent uh, series over the past few weeks on just cardiac events and found that the vast majority were in patients receiving hydroxychloroquine or that drug and azithromycin, including seven cases of cardiac death, uh, 12 who uh, experienced uh, at least syncope and the others with prolonged QT. So again, I, I think we at Johns Hopkins are not advocating for use of these drugs once patients are unstable or in the intensive care unit. Lastly, I'll just close hopefully on a, uh, a brighter note in that uh, vaccine development has, to my eye, been really explosive for COVID-19. You can see here the number of not only uh, approaches that are listed, but those in preclinical uh, uh, phases of development and even um, phase one uh, safety profiles that are in progress. Uh, the WHO has estimated 12 to 18 months for developing an effective and safe uh, vaccine. Uh, we'll have to see if that can be shortened, but uh, this is something that one hopes uh, will um, lead to uh, something that could help curtail or even end the pandemic if it doesn't happen earlier. So Faith, I, I think we have some uh, time for questions. Yes, thank you, Dr. Allwater, for those updates. We will now continue to the listener Q&A. To submit questions for Dr. Allwater of your own, please send questions to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer, at dkbmed.com. If we are not able to address your question in this session, we will try to address it in another session. Okay, first question. What is the current evidence about antihypertensives and if they play a role in virus acquisition or in complications? And is there any thought regarding ACE2 being higher in males than females contributing to the higher number of males being adversely affected with COVID-19? 
Yes, yeah, so these are uh, questions which are really at um, a, a high focus, for example, by the NHLBI uh, in terms of trying to help answer with the ACE2 um, molecule being a receptor for the novel coronavirus. Uh, at the moment, I would say there's really only mixed data and hypotheses, so this really will be borne out as we look at a larger experience, which could be both a combination of looking at uh, electronic medical records as well as prospective studies to try to help understand this. I've seen data suggesting that being on uh, angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitors or receptor blockers are protective. Others saying that perhaps they're not. So I, I think this is unclear. Uh, more males and females tend to have hypertension. So I think this is uh, impossible to really get at at this time. And certainly there are no recommendations um, afoot to, at all for changing medications. Great, thank you. Next question. Some clinicians have suggested that some providers are using ventilators too aggressively. Can you please share your thoughts on that suggestion? Yeah, so obviously uh, this gets at to several issues that I think has to rest at the moment with clinical judgment. I can tell you on the one hand, I have certainly heard critical care and intensivists uh, suggest that they'd rather intubate before there's a crisis. We've seen uh, some people with COVID-19 decline incredibly fast. Uh, uh, and uh, the idea would be you'd like to intervene uh, before there's a code on the floor or you have to bag someone and so on. Uh, obviously, just like with uh, the old fashioned uh, pre-imaging uh, evaluations of appendicitis, uh, some people may not need to be intubated in retrospect, but uh, I think, I'm not sure there's a right or wrong answer. I am not a critical care intensivist. Uh, so I think at the moment, we're not sure. Obviously, everybody would like something that's like Goldilocks with the porridge just right. But I think people are trying to do the best they can and get people to the appropriate uh, levels of care for safety. We've not had extraordinary problems to date extubating people that survive. Uh, some people have had prolonged ICU stays, uh, but uh, that has not been a routine issue beyond those that may already have advanced lung disease. Thank you, next question. I am seeing more information that pink eye or conjunctivitis is a symptom of COVID-19. From what I have read, this is only a late occurring symptom. Can you confirm or comment on this? There have been some uh, reports of these issues, either earlier or later in illness. Uh, I don't know how common it is and whether this has been looked into on a systematic basis. So I think we'll need to reserve some uh, judgment on that, especially in later illness when there could be other reasons for inflammation. Thank you. Our next question is, I have seen reports of clotting issues in people who are severely ill with COVID-19. Is there any guidance on anticoagulation treatment prophylaxis for hospitalized patients? So certainly, especially for patients that are quite ill, uh, who may not be terribly mobile, or uh, who are in the intensive care unit and paralyzed, or proning and so on, 
there are reports of both uh, deep vein thromboses and pulmonary emboli. Um, some centers have advocated for um, anticoagulation uh, at rather significant levels uh, to prevent this problem. It's unclear if this is occurring any more frequently in COVID-19 disease compared to other critical illnesses. Uh, but uh, I would say there is uh, some divide because some have argued about not routinely anticoagulating at high level uh, and then others that do. So uh, I would say at the moment this is an issue uh, lacking some data and people are trying to uh, figure out uh, best practice until there is more. Thank you. Our next learner question, I've heard a few reports of the COVID-19 presentation being similar to high altitude sickness. What is the evidence on this and how would that change the treatment? Well, uh, I, I'm not quite sure I, 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 I've heard this. Uh, high altitude sickness is uh, triggered by a drop in uh, oxygen tension. Uh, uh, and of course that doesn't routinely happen uh, as far as I know, when people are in hospitals that are often at sea level. Uh, I suppose what this might be getting at is a concept that many patients sort of have air hunger or feel short of breath, although their oxygen requirements aren't very high, um, which is a little different than we might see in uh, some uh, typical respiratory illnesses, but might be something similar to what we see in sepsis, where uh, people can have increased respiratory rate and some lower oxygen saturations without really marked uh, demonstrable findings on imaging. All right. Well, thank you again, Dr. Allwater, for joining us today. To claim CE credit, please complete the evaluation at covid19.dkbmed.com and select today's activity. Feel free to access our resource center on covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll find a range of information, including the latest COVID-19 data and statistics, medical society guidelines, and resources in Spanish. To all of our listeners, please be on the lookout for our next activity. We will send out an email when it is available next week. Any questions can be submitted by sending to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q as in question, A as in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thank you for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19. Thank you, Dr. Allwater. Thank you and have a good one.